Hello, I'm Matt Cooper. And I'm Ivan Yates. And you're listening to our new podcast, Path to Power. Now, we're calling it that because in 2024, we're facing into the year of elections at home and abroad. Our local and European elections in June, possibly a general election. There's going to be a general election in the UK that could bring Keir Starmer to power. And of course, the US presidential election in November. Oh, I fear you'll be droning on negatively about Trump again. Inevitable. I don't think it's avoidable, is it? And as I said, probably a general election here in Ireland before the end of 2024. Yeah, I think there's no doubt about that. In fact, the election could be as early as March or June if Leo had his way. Look, the lesson of the spring 2020 election was... January blues, credit card blues, cold weather, incumbent government gets blamed. No way Leo is going to wait that long. The latest, I think it'll be November 24. Well, I hope it'll be that long because we want to bring you this podcast almost every week up to the general election, highlighting the issues and the personalities. Giving you our predictions, or mine at least. (laughs) And then to the formation of government after that. Which could be difficult because one of the things that happened in, in, in 23 was the next all is going to be much larger, 174, which means to get to 88, 90 seats ain't going to be easy. You thought putting Finnick Fall and Finnick Gale together was difficult. This will be much harder. Well, we'll get to all of that later. Today, for our first edition of this new podcast, Path to Power, to which you can subscribe at Apple, Spotify, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. And make sure to tell your friends and forward the link. Today, we're going to review 2023 as a preview for what we'll be doing in the new year on the podcast every week. For example, we're going to talk today about immigration and law and order. And of course, politics follows economics. So we'll be talking about the public finances, what the government is doing with your money and how it dealt with the cost of living crisis. We're also going to talk about housing so I can drop in another mention of my must-buy book for Christmas, Who Really Runs Ireland? Yes, uh, I'm supposed to be the one doing the shameless self-promotion, but Matt needs no encouragement. And we'll also talk about the um, leaking bucket that is the health service, public sector pay and the, the the tsunami of TDs that are retiring. The rise of Sinn Féin and your prediction, Ivan, that it's going to win more than 70 seats in the next doll. I want to see if you're going to still hold to that today and throughout 2024. And of course, the issue of the century, the politics of climate change, our government's position on Ukraine, the conflict in, in Gaza and meddling Michael D. Higgins in the middle of all that. And of course, for me, the story of the year, RTE going bust. Who you like <laughs> we also have to remember and cite we have our own business relationship with Noel Kelly who acts for Ryan Trubbery uh, we'll have to declare that each time we talk about that RT crisis that Noel's company is a partner in this podcast venture but we will be focusing on the political bailout for RTE anyway as listeners may remember us from working together on television together on the Tonight Show on Virgin Media Television that hasn't put either of us off trying to work together again yeah and it should be remembered that was uh, 2017 17 right through to 2020 we covered the leaders election we covered the presidential election and who knows we might do that again but one one new rule Matt is you just got to cut out all the woke nonsense that you go on every evening with on the last no, word. No, 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 no. I'm not letting you use that four-letter word on this show, Ivan. So what I've decided to do is I'm bringing a swear jar into this studio and every time you call me woke, I'm going to levy a 20 euro fine on you. And what we'll do is at the end of the series, we'll take all the money, we'll divide it between us and we'll each put a bet on to benefit our chosen charities and we'll see who wins more or loses the best. Well, you, see, you say that, but there's actually 
actually a serious sentiment here because you and the snowflake generation, you know, if they had their way, we wouldn't eat red meat. Uh, we'd ban a lot of animal sports. We'd actually ban gambling. And anyone you don't agree with, you just cancel them in cancel culture. I'm a live and let live person. You might be a bit surprised, Ivan. But you see, what do you mean by the word which we're not going to mention anymore? Because I define it as been aware of and actively in attentive to important societal facts and issues, especially or especially issues of racial and social justice. Surely all those things are things that you agree with yeah, as well. Well, no, well. we'll put it like this. We'll, we'll come on to take a deep dive into some of those. But, but there is a growing intolerance of younger generations if you don't agree with them and you don't think that all their perspectives on the world are shared. The fact is we have a lot, and this is actually going to come up, I think, in the podcast, the difference between rural Ireland and urban Ireland. There's a lot of traditional pursuits that are now taboo. And I'm saying, you know what, let's not throw the baby out of the bathwater. But no, you being woke, there's no, the jury's Go, not 20, out on that 20 one. euro into the, into the swear <laughs> jar. You've already slipped up and that's the first donation you're going to have to make. Okay, let's take it across the year 2023. Let's talk about some of the issues. And I want to start with immigration because I think this is a major issue throughout the country. And it's one that the rural independents have possibly cynically copped on to. But at the same time, has the government been somewhat naive in looking to offer as much refuge as it can to people from Ukraine and elsewhere while not having the places organised to accommodate these people? Well, I think it actually runs deeper than this. I think the body politic and even the media bubble are completely removed from Middle Ireland. Look, let, let me say, first of all, I really support a multiracial uh, racial Ireland. You know, everything from Razidat Adekeli, our world-class swimmer, uh, sprinter, right through to, you know, the tens of thousands of permits that were needed for the construction industry. 70,000 people left after COVID in our hospitality industry. So we desperately need these people. So hold on, aren't there sort of, there's almost like two classes of immigrants. And, you know, always we have to be careful in how we actually express this. But we've depended for an awful lot of things, particularly in our health service, our nursing home care, our restaurants. You can do a list a mile long as well as construction for the people that we've needed as the economy has grown in recent times. And then we also have what international protection assistance that we've offered, which I think runs at about 10% of all of the people coming into the country. And then we have all the Ukrainians coming in as a result of the war as well. So it's a big number to assimilate at the one time, isn't it? And and it's not being in any way saying that we don't want these people. It's more a recognition and realisation that to deal with all of that is difficult. Well, the gap between rhetoric and political rhetoric and reality has never been greater. First of all, if you go into a pub in, in rural Ireland, they will talk about a couple of seminal events in Ireland and they will not be talked about in Leinster House. And I'm going to go straight to it. The Ashling Murphy trial and Mr. Puskas, the Polanyi trial and conviction in relation to Duke gay guys in Sligo that were killed. That type of thing has created a situation where people are asking, what is the vetting procedure? Can people just walk into Treasure Island? There's a separate issue, which is the pure quantum of numbers. Okay, hold on. Let's go back, first of all, to the Pushka incident, Joseph Pushka, the savage murder of Ashling Murphy. And it was dreadful. But the nature of freedom of travel is Irish people can move elsewhere 
and they don't get vetted, right? People get vetted coming from outside the European Union. He was an EU citizen. And the reality is as well, that was an awful random attack. But the majority of women who have been murdered or attacked in this country are done so by Irish people. Mm. So what are you going to do? You're going to vet Irish people and if you regard them as a threat, that you lock them up on the basis that they're a threat or deport them from the country. I mean, tragic as all as it is, and it was a dreadful thing to happen, you can't suddenly start saying that these type of things wouldn't happen if there weren't foreigners in the country. Irish people kill and assault as well. Well, the first gulf on this issue is uh, middle-class Dublin is basically protected, in my opinion, from the reality of this. The the, the real stresses of overcrowding, homelessness, uh, benefit abuse, and all these things are seen in inner city areas. But actually, rural Ireland has been full up every hotel, self-catering unit, and so on. And we just do not have the capacity to do it. And if we've seen in recent days, the government have moved the benefits and so on. It's only when actually civil servants say this has reached a crisis point, saturation point. Anyone else say it and you're accused of being a racist. What I want to say is this. I know people who would have offered to put people into their homes, Ukrainians, in February uh, 22 when this all kicked off. They now are saying enough is enough. And these people are not racist. They're Middle Ireland. They're ordinary, decent people. And I guarantee you, this is a wider issue in terms of Europe, as you've said. But you will see when you open the boxes for the European elections, whether it's Italy, whether it's France, whether it's Germany, there will be a huge move against open borders. I suspect it's actually going to be a major factor in the local elections as well. I suspect there's going to be a lot of independent candidates who are going to come forward. And even that there are people who might only quietly express disquiet, who will then use the ballot box and it could have a major, major impact. And there are things I think the government should be doing and where they are deserving of criticism. So, I agree with you about rural Ireland. Two places I've been in recent months where it has very much struck me uh, in my mother-in-law's hometown of Mill Street in North Cork where they have a major centre. As rural centre, as you get. As rural as you get. And I was down turning on the Christmas lights <laughs> recently there. And that is certainly out in Trishan Convent. They have had for years a centre there. So they have a very large immigrant population which has brought, in fairness, a fair bit of life back to a town which was struggling a little bit. Yeah. Also, I was in Westport and Westport is one of the most prosperous parts of the country because of the allergen plant over there and it's a beautiful town. Yeah. It's one of the very it's, little dereliction. It's derelictions. a conference centre actually. It's yeah, a brilliant yeah, town. Around, yeah. But one of the hotels there as well is completely taken over by Ukrainian residents. And even from their point of view, you know, you wonder what good does it do for having families in hotel rooms? That is not a place where you want to live for any more more than a couple of weeks or a couple of months. But what the government should have done, they're very near to where we're recording this today. We have the Old Jewry's Hotel Mm. and the Taurus Hotel slap bang in the middle of Dublin 4 and they've been derelict for years. And there's talk about them being sold for use as a new US embassy and stuff. There's been talk. That should have been requisitioned by the state. That's where you should have had asylum detention centre or whatever you want Mm. to call it uh, for international protection. But it doesn't happen in the heart of Dublin 4. And when it doesn't happen in the heart of Dublin 4, that's when people in other parts of Dublin and around rural Ireland say, well, why is it not good enough for there if it's good enough for us? We'll come back to this issue throughout the year. But what I'm really pointing up is the gulf in this debate about this, what people are saying in private and what people really think and what's happening in the media. And and does that facilitate then the far-right extremists? Absolutely. I mean, like, labelling anyone or everyone who has a concern about this as racist and far-right is actually part of the problem. 
Okay, well, let's talk about law and order because that's become a big issue since the Dublin riots. How well do you think did the government do politically in its response to that? And was this Sinn Féin criticism of Helen McEntee and the Garda Commissioner, Drew Harris, warranted, even if perhaps politically they didn't play it all correctly? Well, first of all, I, I, I think when you have an explosive incident like the riots, they're often an incident waiting to happen. And I think if you look back throughout the year, some of the incidents, I think you will see that there's a deeper problem and it's within the senior levels of Angarda Shiakona. I was very involved in the Morris McCabe issue and so on. And, you know, the, the Gardaí tend to be a bit tribal around different factions and so on. But there are real, real amber flashing lights in relation to Drew Harris's tenure. First of all, the 99% a vote of no confidence, unprecedented by ordinary rank and file GRA members. The fact that no one applied for the deputy commissioner post. I never heard that before because the idea is that would be the next commissioner. What I'm hearing in relation to the particular and the general, that the Decision to call in the public riot uh, uh, police uh, was delayed. That senior management... Sorry, they had to go home and get their equipment. Well, they well, didn't have anywhere to store it in the guard stations. Well, so guardy were told, go home and get your stuff well, and come back us, in and deal with the riot. That, that, that comedy of errors. The fact of the matter is... I've been told by very reputable senior guardi that senior management have been hollowed out. People are afraid to make a decision. And that Drew Harris was an external appointment and he introduced a culture uh, which is more like a constabulary than a, an Irish police force. And what, what, what I'm hearing is at every level, morale is extremely low. Uh, people are opting out. And I'll just give you one tip. Keep an eye out for the name John Barrett. He was a former assistant commissioner that actually uh, belled the cash in relation to Templemore, financial malpractice and so on. He has proceedings uh, before the High Court. But I'm, I'm saying now that Drew Harris and McEntee have been joined at the hip and a lot of that is going to come under huge scrutiny and there is no confidence in senior management and, and, and this is an incident waiting to happen. Okay, as a former Fine Gael minister, can you explain to me this one that often baffles me? There has been a number of times in the past year promises of an extra 400 to 500 prison spaces and the promises keep getting made and you're wondering when are those spaces actually going to come? So I know the Irish Council for Civil Liberties and others will say, look, imprisonment, particularly for short terms of up to 12 months, is not the best way about going about rehabilitation or making sure that people don't do the wrong things. But we have a massively growing population and we have old prisons such as Mountjoy, which are not fit for purpose. The land is up in Thornton Hall. Why the hell did the government, even as an optics, given that Fine Gael is supposed to be the Justice Party, why the hell didn't they go ahead and build a new prison, have it under construction and be able to open it and say, there, there we are, there we're doing something about crime? Well, uh, first of all, I, I think our prison population varies somewhere between 4,500 and 4,700 and for a population which you rightly say is rising of 5 million, that would seem... 5.3 million? Yeah, is, is an underprovision. It's usually at least one in a thousand. Um Thornton Hall became a huge disaster. We spent 51 million on it, a Michael McDowell project, which was perhaps well-intentioned, but actually it's now been handed over to the Land Development Agency for housing. The, the, the fact oh, of the Sorry, matter, no, it's actually, at the moment, it's actually been used for grazing sheep and well, cattle. Well, no, yeah, but that's, sorry, the Land <laughs> Development Agency, if they get their act together. But put it like this, I certainly think Cloverhill and Port Leash are our largest prisons. They do need to be increased. And definitely people are fed up 
of the revolving door syndrome. That people, whether it's the juvenile justice system or whatever, cannot be uh, retained simply because there's no space in prisons. Well, you could have modern facilities which would be better as well compared to some of the conditions that we actually have. But of course, that all takes money. What about the state of the government finances? <laughs> all the money is coming in, but what is the government doing? It has it actually spent wisely enough to get political advantage and instead it gets accused by the likes of the Fiscal Advisory Council of gimmickry. Well, I, I think the key point about the public finances, just give me a moment on this. Uh, I'm sure you'll take a moment. Well, not? No, no the, the last decade, simple fact, 2013, we collected 4.2 billion in corporation tax. Yeah. This year, after the NORA, remember, returns, 23.5 billion. So it's gone from 4 billion to 24 billion, a six-fold increase. Everything that's happened in the last decade, COVID, Ukraine, refugees, uh, public sector pay, cost of living crisis, has been cushioned by the fact that we've had this ocean of money. And, and my biggest fear is this, that it's actually made the government look good, good because, you know, the, the Fiscal Council have said, you know, they're about 7 billion, 6.6 to be precise, over what was their own spending limit of 5% or whatever. So the situation is... I think the biggest issue facing the next government and facing the country in 2024, what is the SWOT analysis of the future of CPT? In other words, corporation tax, the, the, the huge point about it is that if you take the top 10, your Apples, your Microsoft, your Intel, IBM and others, and even Pfizer, and take them out of it, if their boardroom decided, you know what, if Trump gets in and reduces corporation tax from the 15% they're going to have to pay next year, uh, 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 25 down to 15, they may well take a different view of the world. And then where are we? There is no way our income tax and our spending taxes can sustain our permanent increase in public expenditure. So in other words, they've been getting away with it while this golden goose has been laying dozens of eggs each year. Now, it won't come to a crisis next year because the, the rate is going to go up to 15%. But my fear, my fear is that actually our public finances are based on quicksand. Yeah, but Hunger, there's two things that come out of that, though, that I want you to also look at. One of those is if we've had this extraordinary growth in corporation tax revenues on the base of a booming economy, why is Fine Gael in particular and this government, given that Fianna Fáil and the Greens are involved in it as well, fail to get political benefit out of it for all of this spending? Is it because they have spent it too widely? Is it because they haven't had eye-catching spending? What is it that they actually have... Fa- Why is it that they've actually failed to get political benefit from it and could lose the next election? Well, uh, I, I think they won't lose the next election for lack of public spending. In other words, you take... I was listening to Pascal Donahue at a conference the other day and he said as recently as 2016 uh, the sort of uh, infrastructural spend to support housing uh, and, and so on was about 4 billion and it's now 12 billion. You know, they've spent a lot on capital yeah, spending. But people don't perceive that no, or people don't perceive it to be a benefit of them. And maybe it also comes down to a little bit if you look into the CSL figures as well uh, you know, the actual standard of living when you take inflation into account hasn't really gone up since 2016 although the amount of wealth in the country is a lot bigger and the, amount, and the amount of income the amount of people in the country is as well so it's just spread evenly almost well I, I suppose sorry, the, evenly amongst people yeah, because well, we have a lot of inequity it, it, in the society if your question is why are the government you know Fianna Fáil 15-16% and actually Fine Gaelers don't believe the 20% they think they're lower than that and they're a lot more uh, fragile in terms of, of where they think they're real support at look 
there is a there is the fundamental driving force in public opinion, which is the age divide. People in their 30s and people under 40 are not going to vote the way their parents voted. And they, they've made a conscious decision to do that. And the reason is they believe that all the things their parents worked hard for for 40 years over a lifetime to get 50% of your salary in a pension, to own your own home. Home ownership in 30, the SRI uh, uh, has done detailed work on this. People between 33 and 45, home ownership in the 70s, 80s, 90s and noughties was 90%. Had your first toe on the bottom rung of the property ladder. Had a mortgage of some description. That's gone down to 60%. And they can't get over the hump of paying rent and they are bitter and they feel the system doesn't serve them. Interest rates going up help those who have assets and have savings. It doesn't help borrowers. Okay, we're jumping on a little bit here, but it is actually one of the central things that I did examine in the book, Who Really Owns Ireland? Because... Maybe this all happened in plain sight and we didn't have enough of a debate and discussion about it about a decade ago because there was a decision taken after the crash. Well, too many people can't afford to be owning their own homes. They can't afford big mortgages. It was made deliberately more difficult for them. There were limits put on the mortgage that they could get. It was a paternalistic approach almost that we can't have as much home ownership as we have. So we have to encourage people to rent. Now, what nobody anticipated was that the rents would actually become bigger than the mortgages. And that came down to a failure to build enough actual supply. It also came down to a negativity in relation to having international institutions providing the apartments or the housing, which would be made available for rent. And it also came down to massive problems in the planning process older generation being quite selfish in many respects and not wanting things to be built near them. The NIMBY generation, the older generation. Absolutely. And, and, I, I, and I will come on to this. There's a housing crisis, but there's a planning emergency in this country and it isn't just housing, it's, it's wind farms and, and it's lots of things. But just to take one example there, you said, apartment blocks. That whole thing, whether it's Blackstone, whether it's Kennedy Wilson and all those people and call them what you will, vulture funds being brought in here. Their whole business model was low or cheap money, you know, zero yes. interest rates and rising rents. Now you have rent caps and rising cost of money. So they've actually fled they've the stopped. country. Yeah, they've stopped. They're no longer so our a, that's a feature of the economy. So that means that it falls back more on the state to provide, but the state only has so much resources in relation to money and labour in relation to that, which means this is an international phenomenon as well. We're often guilty, I think, in this country of thinking of things that it's a purely Irish problem that we mess things up for ourselves. But this is actually an international phenomenon happening in the UK as well. But something else I go go back to, which was often missed at the time when everyone was banging on about the evil vulture funds as they were been described. Even at that time, the state was more likely to buy newly built houses and apartments than these vulture funds were. And the people who were complaining that they couldn't buy because they were being beaten out were being beaten out by the state. And I'm aware of housing estates, one up in County Meath, for example, 300 houses, lots of people in the area, this is great, we can go and try and buy for ourselves. The state came in and bought every one of them. And, and actually agencies. that's going to get worse because if you speak to developers, they will say, if you're building for an approved housing body, be it Respond or Cluid or one of those, you will get 100% of the finance, up to 400 grand a unit, whereas they'll only give you 50% if you're trying to sell it to the market. But I do want to come back to that. Uh, sorry, but again, just one more point in relation to that. We need all that social and affordable housing. The problem is that there's an enormous gap in left 
of people on middle income earners and slightly higher who now are finding themselves absolutely screwed and then can't get somewhere to buy, just even if they can get the mortgage, can't find somewhere to buy and then find themselves with dead money, wasting it on rent, extremely high rents. Do the maths, it's very simple. Okay, but can we come back to the cost of living crisis? Because that seems to be abating. So as we're reviewing 2023 and sort of teeing up what we'll be doing on passive power during 2024, did the government do enough for those who were vulnerable in things like support for electricity and gas bills and also reducing the price of petrol and diesel? Well, everything they did was universal. If you had an ESB account, you got the credit of the 200 euro. the upside of that is I can't remember any decade in my life where the public sector trade unions were more quiet. You know, I, you, you know, if you see a protest from ICTU, it's not about pay. It's about some social issue or other. The fact of the matter is actually those uh, universal benefits succeeded in securing, and the jury's out where it's going for the future, secured uh, pay agreements that were less than the rate of inflation. And and put it like this, I think uh, that that has been incredible. Like when you look at the UK, you see Mick Lynch, you see continual strikes in the NHS. We haven't had that here. And in fact, there's more harmony in, in terms of employer-employee relationships than there ever was under partnership. Well, as we're doing this, we're awaiting the outcome of the public sector pay talks, but they will try and make up for what might have been missed out on uh, with inflation having been higher than the previous agreements. But I think we can take it that the government will buy industrial peace. It may be the public sector workers are no longer as big and influential a voting bloc. But there's 360,000 public servants. But there's 2.2 million people at work. There has never been that division in proportions. They still remain very, very important. But they're not... I I have to come back to one point, which is this, because this actually takes up a lot of my time. I just want to talk about our planning system. So, uh, for example, on, on housing, you couldn't make it up in a housing crisis. It's reckoned of zoned land, about 20% of it, can, translates to houses. We have dezoned forty percent of the land in this country. And you've been reading plans. my book, have you? Well, uh, secondly, secondly, <laughs> what's the name of it again? Who really owns Ireland, Ivan? <laughs> and, and, and and you you then move on not only to the planning shortages. I don't know if you saw the RT investigates primetime program in relation to because it takes seventy weeks. An objector can say, Matt, um, you know what, if I object to board Planola for this, I'll hold you up for 70 weeks. And you know what, if I lose, I'll take a judicial review. This has opened the system for abuse. Okay, but hold on, there's a couple of things I'll say about that. I'm not in any way defending that because that is an outrageous abuse. But politicians abuse the system as well. Politicians well, are amongst those... residents are objecting to everything. Yeah, and the politicians support them because their reckoning is, well, there's votes for those who are living here and there's no guarantee of votes for the houses that may be built in the future and they certainly won't be built in time for the next election. So there's a cynicism in relation to politicians when it comes to actually objecting to things in particular areas well, even when they're it's needed. A, it's a, and there's no question. Uh, politicians are wailing and running with the hair and hunting with the hand. Uh, you know, about the housing crisis when they are deliberately uh, being populist on the ground to, to object. No, there's and it's, 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 it's also, in fairness, now, there will be some developers who will be chancers who will try and put up things that are substandard or won't be as are required in an area. And there is a balance. But the problem is our planning system is so, so bad and under understaffed but as no, well. But, but, Sorry, you know the way we got into the financial crisis because we didn't have enough yes. regulators? 
we're in a planning crisis because we don't have enough staff in a planning okay, department. Okay, go, go figure this. Like, if I want to get anything done, I go to the people who are at the front line of the river. So I go to Cairn Homes and Glenvay, who are trying to build around two, 3,000 houses a year. And they say to me, Ivan, we were refused planning permission in Greystones, Newbridge and Nace for 400 houses. Why? Because there's a thing called the National Planning Framework, which is based on an out-of-day census. 2016 census. Exactly, which is completely, completely warped and, 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 and not fit for purpose. And do you think the government do it? I'll give you another example. You cannot build a house without water. So I sat down with Irish Water and they said, Ivan... Dublin will run out of sewage treatment and water within eight years. We are screaming at the government now. They said, we want to triage our planning applications. We want to, do you know, it's a crazy thing. You go through the planning process for maybe three or four years. Then you have to start a separate consent process, run them concurrently. You know, absolute common sense. I put it to Pascal Dunno two years later. He looked at me as if he didn't know what I was talking about. Uh, CPOs. In other words, these are public sector projects that will be absolutely critical. And I, so, I mean, they're just, because some of this is complex, the fact, and the same will come down to AirGrid. Our planning system is not fit for purpose. We'll get back to that during 2024 when we're in Path to on a weekly basis. But I do want to talk about health because the politics of Stephen Donnelly against Pascal Donoghue really interests me. It does seem extraordinary that the 2024 budget was set without really taking the 2023 overrun and outturn into full account. And it also really makes me wonder about what is Robert Watt doing in there as Secretary of the Department of Health, the best paid civil servant in the country, and an awful fuss about the fact that he's on almost a private sector wage for being in there. But he came with a reputation from the Department of Public Expenditure of being a hard man for stamping down on excess and on waste. And here he is in the Department of Health taking the minister's side and lobbying for more money. So does that mean that we set unrealistic budgets for health in the first place? Well, well, first of all, what does that tell you? If there's only 10 months money for that maybe the election is not going to be after November in 24. In other words, it'll be someone else's problem. That's my first instinct to it, and it's quite cynical insofar as that that is a problem that can be talked about and so on, but actually there won't be a cash crisis, as Mr. Gloucester has referred to the CEO, until until then. Can I just say this? If you look at the sort of impossible exponential cost of health. And today we have 700,000 people over 65. In 20 years' time, we'll have 1.7 million, another 1.7 million pensioners. And not only are there more of them, as someone in the pensions industry said to me, the bastards are living longer. <laughs> and so the fact of the matter is that we, we, this is all going to get worse because 90-year-olds need lots of treatment. Unless we take paper out of the system and systemically introduce electronic health records, unless we introduce all the apps that are in place so people don't have to go in to meet the consultant, whether it's, uh, it's digital CBT, whether it's physiotherapy, there are new technologies. And in my view, the only salvation of the health service is the systemic embracing of technology. Okay, well, there's a couple of things there because... I think the system is so old and outdated, upgrading it is incredibly difficult. It's the same like, for example, the banks. The banks are having, have spent billions on trying to upgrade their technology and are still having problems with security and transactions. The banks were going to put in a Revolut-style app that they were coming together on. They've abandoned it. Too difficult for them to actually do. 
I think something similar may be happening in My the health system. My heart for the banks, you know this. I know that. <laughs> anyway, but in the health system, because apparently there are so many different systems trying to integrate them all together. There is a new app starting off, but it's going to be have less functionality, I think, than a fucking Dublin bus app to, be, to start with. Maybe in time it'll actually get there. I agree. Every time you go into a hospital, right, you should be able to call up on an iPad you should be able to put in your details. Every blood test every, you ever had. Every detail should be immediately available rather than getting papers transferred from one hospital over to another. It would or, improve or from, from it, uh, clinics and diagnostics exactly and everything. all that. It would improve patient care as much as it would help reducing cost. So that is essential. Yeah, so one other bullet needs to be bitten and that is this. <clears throat> so you have all these resources of our acute bed system and so on. The truth of it is modern hospital systems in the US are now run on a seven-day week. You cannot run them on a five-day week. Which, in fairness, Stephen Donnelly has been trying to say that the issue of discharges at weekends, which, to be honest... No, I've, but a I've, CT I've, machine I've been, I've been should be working as oh, hard yes, on a Sunday as it is on a Thursday. Absolutely. And then artificial intelligence will bring in opportunities for better healthcare as well. But here's another issue. Again, growing population. We need more hospital beds. So the government has a plan, which was announced years ago in relation to the construction of new elective hospitals for Dublin, for Cork and for Galway. It's reckoned that the earliest any of these will actually be available is 2027, right? They're now at the moment of procuring tenders for tendering almost. Yeah. This They haven't identified a location in Dublin as yet, even though I know there are developers who have made suggestions to them. They, ha- they have a location in Cork. I'm not sure about Galway. I think they have one as well. But an announcement is made and everything meanders along slowly. So like what I said about the prisons yeah. earlier, we need these beds. We have an aging population, we have a bigger population, and we have a crisis in our existing hospital system, and yet we're not building the new hospitals Someone in the OPW said to me, whether it's a ring road, whether it's a port development, or all the developments you spoke about, the average lead time now in Ireland, because the planning and consent now has gone from 8 to 15 years. So, you know, and then, of course, and the then of course, the disaster of the National Children's Hospital overruns and delays and the rest of it makes people cynical about the delivery of these things, but they're essential. And the other age-related thing that I have to bring up is nursing homes. We're going to need more and more nursing homes. Did you know and you a lot of new nursing homes are going bust? Oh, yeah. It's an amazing story. And there's no like more it, being it, built. It's, it's counterintuitive, isn't it? There is no more being built as well because of the same interest rate situation that you described for housing the various international operators who are coming into the Irish market now are saying, well, money is more expensive. The charges are not going up. There's problems with the Department of Health in relation to fair deal and the rest of it. So we are now have a come to a standstill in the construction of new facilities which are required. And if you look into how the state has spent in providing new nursing home facilities, absolute disaster. It's only replacing some of those long outdated ones that needed which, to be replaced. See, and sorry, and worse than that, Ivan, on some occasions, the cost has been six to eight times more than what the private sector but, but, would do. But does this come as a surprise to you? You take Eamon Ryan, you take a lot of the ministers that are there at the moment. Their, their outlook is not beyond the next election. After the next election, this is going to be someone else's problem. Why, are you thinking and, they've conceded defeat? No, no, what I'm saying is always politicians think in short term. They don't think beyond the next okay, election. But my question... The then, whole idea of Project 40 was to overcome this. But my question then goes but goes to, you know, the, what we will be examining throughout 2024 and past the bar is who is likely to win the elections coming up. And the Irish general election, whenever that is, an expectation has developed 
that Sinn Féin will come in and younger people think Sinn Féin will deliver change. Will it be possible for Sinn Féin to deliver change if you have a public system which seems to be caught in paralysis? Will they be able to come in and set a bomb under the public service? Well, well, obviously, um, there, there's two issues there. One is the emotional issue of change, but there's no doubt that the permanent government, it's their day job to deliver this infrastructure across health and so on. Let me give you another example. The biggest issue of our generation of the century is that at some point, in my view, this century, the industry, the internal combustion engine, whether for lawnmower or for a car, will, will no longer exist. Fossil fuels will go. And the simple way I look at this, for the built environment, heat pumps instead of boilers, for transport electric vehicles, the whole idea is that we have renewable sources of electricity, wind and solar. At the moment, it's 34%. And that, that's quite actually a lot of progress. And we've promised uh, that we're going to get that up of renewable electricity generation to 80% by 2030. Not a chance. No. So, and that's, so let's drill down into that. Seven gigawatts of offshore wind and four uh, gigawatts of onshore wind farms. Bublin Oil in the last six weeks have taken a decision that they won't go against any local authority that wants a wind farm. And in Kerry and in Donegal, they've said locally, no more. On top of that then, let's look at the offshore situation. Mara, uh, Bolpinola are actually going to deal with the planning applications. They can't deal with terra firma. They have no experience of the marine environment. Them getting their heads around all the ecological issues. We only have one port that's fit for purpose and that's Belfast to deal with it. And this has all got to be done. Like it'll take actually 20 years. And so, sorry, if we're then keeping money point going, you know, to keep the electricity demand going as we switch to electricity uh, consumption, this actually shows you that there isn't joined up thinking. The way we did the national roads 20 years ago, this is the number one national part. You would think somewhere someone would decide, you know, renewable electricity is the number one priority. Yeah, And, and I, I just think it's a no brainer and nobody's even talking about it. Okay, so let's talk though more about Sinn Féin. Yeah. Because, and I will come back to you, I do want to talk about it because it's a big issue with me as well, this, this potential that we have in offshore energy, but the failure to get the grid ready to facilitate it as yeah, well as the planning. Grid, yeah, yeah. And the ports, you're right. Yeah. I mean, there's potential in Ross Lairs, potential in Tarbot, various places where things can be done. But the Sinn Féin thing, yeah. in the last few weeks, the rise of Sinn Féin, in some respects, look, it looks as if it may have been checked a little bit. Yeah. A fall across not just one opinion poll, but various opinion polls, just a few percent margin of error. But the fact that it's happening across different polls is interesting. I mean, could it be that it's vulnerable to the populism of the far right, even if it regards itself as a left-wing party, in that an awful lot of the support for Sinn Féin may not necessarily be for the things that it's most concerned about, such as a united Ireland, or even housing or health issues. It's just, we're fed up with a lot who are in power. It's an anti-establishment vote. And if the independents or new party comes along and starts saying, well, we'll deal with our issues by dealing with the immigrants, that ironically, and I have to give credit to Sinn Féin that up until now, it has not been running anti-immigrant stances, certainly not at national level, that it will come under pressure and could lose votes. Well, I, I attribute the falling off of their support from, say, 33, 34 to 27, 28 percent 
is actually because they're on the wrong side of the migration debate right now. I think you're absolutely right about that. This is what I talk about, the gulf between what people are thinking and, and what people are saying. Uh, and and I think Sinn Féin on the ground have been playing it both ways in relation to that. Look, we have to go back to the 2020 election. In the space of a year, the zeitgeist that was Mary Lou MacDonald took hold. I, I give the example of a local Sinn Féin councillor who lost his seat in 2019 and ended up with 18,000 votes. In Johnny 20, Mythen. Yes, Johnny Mythen. And, and, and you could give many more examples. There is, and sorry, let's be clear, what is the brand here? The brand is Mary Lou MacDonald. Sorry, Lou, is it not Sinn Féin, the United Ireland Party? Uh, put it like this, for its activists, yes. But for popular appeal, you know, people people will go into bowling booths who rarely vote and say, I'm not voting, Mary Lou isn't on the ballot paper, such as their ignorance of the uh, local constituency system. Uh, look, uh, this, this, this actually is what politicians are talking about. And as far as I'm concerned, the most interesting thing is they left 12 seats behind them. They got 24.5% of the vote in the last general election, simply not running enough candidates. Um, so it really is important to Sinn Féin that they get the local elections out of the way first. First of all, they did really badly. They got 9% in 2019. So they're going to get a lot of poll toppers locally who'll be ready-made general election campaign. Leo, Leo has taken the view, and, and I've heard this, I've heard this distinctly, that the narrative and the public opinion after the local elections could well be that the government is lame duck, administration, dead man walking. And then as we get to the autumn, clinging on to power. When in the name of God are you going to go? In other words, the momentum is going to build that actually Leo feels every day after the 9th of June will be worse than every day before it. And if he had his way, he'd have a March election. Whereas Fianna Fáil said, hold on a second, you've signed up to five budgets. You know what I mean? And, you know, and they, they feel they get a bounce off a budget because usually it gives away up to 40 euros per week per head. So the fact of the matter is, and they'll say, do you want preferences? And do you ever want to do this coalition again? So what I'm trying to say to you is, I think the biggest talking point uh, over Christmas in relation to the party leaders is when the next election will be. OK, but can I give you another example from recent history? 2007, when we went into that election... We went in when I think people generally realised the Celtic bubble was deflating, that the economy was changing. It took a little while longer for the effects to hit home, but from Patrick's The smash day, came away to 10. Yeah, but, but, yeah, but the warning signs the were The warning there. were there for signs from, from the Patrick's Day to, uh, yeah, yeah, 2007. Yeah. And people went into that election knowing that things were slowing down and changing. They also went in knowing that Bertie Hearn's finances were a major issue. And yet they re-elected Fianna Fáil. And the belief was at the time that they did so because they were afraid of change. Yeah. So we have a narrative now at the moment that a significant amount of people seem to want change and will give Sinn Féin the opportunity because of that. But could it be that the approach taken by the government parties will be you can't afford change? And for things like, as you mentioned earlier, you can't put the corporation tax revenues at risk by having a party in that is not necessarily wedded to the idea of foreign multinational investment. And coming back to your early point, why is it the government are so blithely ignoring the Fiscal Advisory Council? They don't want to leave the larder full of money if they're going out of power and and Sinn Féin is getting in. They're saying, you know, and I remember a lot of Fine Gael people who lost their seat in 2020 
blamed Pascal that there was 5 million here, 10 million there in constituency largesse he could have given away and he was totally strict about it and it cost the party seats. But Finnegal have another problem. Matt, I have an iron rule of politics. Unless it's China or Russia, whether it's Bertie, whether it's Blair, whether it's Thatcher, you don't get much beyond 12 years. Uh, absolute limit, 14 years. And Fine Gael is coming up against that. They're in power consecutively since 2011. And I think if Leo or Simon or Pascal gets up and says, we're going to do this about housing or health, people will say, mate, you had 14 years to do something about housing or health. Go away. Well, one of the stories of 2023 has been the planned exodus of TDs. Why do you think so many are giving up? And giving up at a younger age, although in fairness, you did it. You gave up yeah, in your 40s. 41, absolutely. Number one, uh, I actually was at a, a councillor's event the other day and the longest serving councillor was 21 years, you know, standing for the local election again. Uh, first of all, working patterns have changed. Uh, 20 years is now seen as a good innings. It's not a bad career to leverage onto something else, to go back to an industry you were in or to actually go into different industries uh, because you have a breadth of experience. So first of all, the shelf life of TDs, the turnover of TDs is going to go up from 20% to 40% for every five years ele elections. Secondly, look, I, I, I mean, I, this is a huge problem for Fine Gael. You take Kerry. Griffin not standing. Some of these are Leo Redbrams, uh, Joe McHugh. I'm looking at constituency polls to say the difference between Fine Gael holding that seat or losing that seat, Fergus O'Dowd, uh, maybe even Charlie Flanagan's seat. You go through them. You see, this happened to the Labour Party. The brand is, oh, for 40 years I voted for Brendan Howland, for Noel Tracy, for Seamus Patterson and so on. And once that goes, will they will they transfer? So I actually think, like my general feeling is that Fine Gael will be somewhere around twenty five seats, and which is, Ben they got seventy five seats in twenty eleven. It's it's quite stark, but give or take a, a few. The reality of it is, they more than any party are decimated by retirements. And of course, I've been saying since last summer that Pascal Donoghue may not be a candidate in the next election. Everyone, including Pascal Donoghue, ridiculed me. And now Mr. IMF are looking for him. You couldn't blame him though, could you? Oh, for totally tickets? not. No, no, I just want him to be honest about it. <laughs> <laughs> you can't say that you want a job until you know you're actually going to get yeah, it. Absolutely, absolutely. But you've got to create a, a tailwind of this is in the national interest first. Okay, just a few things I want to tease out before we finish and um, what this is is sort of a pilot for what we'll be doing in 2024 on Path to Power. You've already mentioned climate change and you've also mentioned the rural-urban divide. Because one thing that the rural independents particularly did during the year is try and make the Green Party the hate figures for rural Ireland. But it does strike me that even if they got their wish and managed to get the Green Party out of the doyle, Eamon Ryan, Catherine Martin, mm. everyone else out of government, out of politics, it wouldn't change What's going to happen in politics? No, I, I mean like burning an effigy or, or of Eamon Ryan or the Green Party going down to two seats will not make this issue go in. The reason why this, and this is important for me, Europe has decided they want to be best in class in terms of sustainability. All these directive, the uh, sustainability reporting, corporate sustainability reporting directive, the energy efficiency directive uh, uh, and the sustainability finance directive is coming in every direction for every sector of the economy, methane in, in agriculture and so on. And after the three black swan events, COVID, you know what? For vaccines or PPE, Europe could achieve a lot more than any member state. 
when Russia invaded Ukraine in February 22? What if we were attacked, they were saying, in Norway and in Ireland? And therefore that enhanced uh, Europe. And, and, and all these issues, Brexit, no, Euroscepticism is dead. In all these issues, there's only one show in town and it's, it's Brussels. And Brussels have said, and this, there's smarts behind this. We are going to do the hard yards of all the technological things. You take it, I think, on the 1st of February. Every plastic bottle in this country is going to be subject to a levy. And where are the machines made, you know, to actually, you hand in your bottle and you crush it and you get your 15 cent back? They're made in Norway and they're made in Germany. So they believe they can sell to Asia and America all this technology if they do the hard yards first. But then where does it leave the Greens? Because... Eamon Ryan does seem to be a lightning rod for a lot of criticism of the government, particularly in rural Ireland. And everyone's saying the Greens are finished. But surely the Greens only like need one in ten to actually like them and give them a vote for the Greens to survive. I think the issue is the environment, sustainability isn't a thing. It isn't the thing. It's everything. You take the Climate Act vote in 2021. All the farmers' parties lobbied like hell. What was the vote at second stage? Less than 20 independent TDs vote against every single major party, every TD, Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil, Labour, Sinn Féin, all voted in favour of this change. In other words, I think that the green sustainability issue is so omnipotent that it definitely is now every party. It's not just the Green Party. So actually, I, I actually think it's become much bigger than that. OK, let's talk a little bit. We have two items I want to talk about before we finish. One is essentially foreign affairs. You, as well as your book, of course. <laughs> oh, thanks for mentioning that. I'd forgotten about that, Ivan, yeah. Uh, foreign affairs. I suppose the two big international stories have been the continuing uh, a fallout of the Russian invasion of Ukraine in early 2022. And in recent months, the horrific Hamas attack on Israel, which provoked a response from Israel that it seems the majority of people in Ireland believe is utterly disproportionate to what had been done to Israel. How brave has the government been, do you think, particularly of Radker and Michal Martin in their comments, which wouldn't necessarily go down well in the United States, would they, with a lot of the pro-Israel lobby and indeed with a lot of other fellow member EU well, states? Well, well, let me ask you a question. You've been 30 years as a working journalist and editor. Why is the West, UK, US, EU, Esther van der Linn, their default position is so pro-Israel. And I'm actually, I'm genuinely puzzled. Is it guilt over the Holocaust? Yes. Is it, is it Jewish money in the, in the stock exchange? Or is it that in, in a world conflict, Israel will stand up for the Western values against, you know, the Arab state, be it Iran or whatever? Why is it that the default position, because as you say, on the face of it, it seems a complete overreaction. It seems barbaric. It's barbaric and it's counterproductive and that all it does is generate further hostility, which means there will be further danger to Israeli people in the Israeli state in the future. A number of things, Why? I suppose, in relation to this. I think the guilt thing, I, I certainly do not subscribe to the idea that it's money related because you can very easily fall into anti-Semitic tropes if you actually believe that. But anyway, the it's a guilt thing. You've got to remember the guilt about the failure to intervene to prevent the Holocaust and the six million lives lost led to the actual creation of Israel by Europe and by the United States. Now, you know, maybe that it was not as well thought out a project as it should have been. It did create its own new injustice with the Palestinian people. But certainly the right to Israel to exist is one I think that should be defended. Then it falls upon Israel to behave appropriately. But I think we should also shouldn't forget, I think the 
psychological damage of what happened to the Jewish people is ingrained in the Israeli thinking. Now, there also is a suggestion that, well, we won't get too much into this, but anyway, that's... So you think that default position in nearly all circumstances, the West will support Israel, which is underlying Netanyahu's approach. There is an element of that. The only thing I will say, though, is that I do worry a little bit that I have, particularly in interviewing the Israeli ambassador in recent times, emphasised that Ireland is not anti-Semitic. And I think Ireland has done well. We've had Jewish members of parliament. We've had Jewish cabinet ministers. I think Jewish people have felt very safe in this country. But I think, I know... Some, and Ireland is very cosmopolitan. It like is. there's all sorts of people you from know, all over the world. Absolutely. Now. And more and more of that. Yeah. And it's only small numbers who actually yeah. object yeah. to that. So, you know, that that's something that's positive about So Ireland how do you think well. that'll play out However, in 24? However, you, you would worry that some of the objections to what Israel is doing in Gaza at present, that there are some elements who are anti-Semitic in relation to that. And that is something I think we do need to be yeah. clear on as well. You know, just as we had to be worried about the rise of the right, I think some of that anti-Semitism is coming from the left. Well, my, my default position is that if Leo or Michal Martin goes to the UN, goes to Gaza and makes a great speech, it doesn't earn them one vote. This is not this is not a crunch issue. The issues no, we've spoken about are the crunch but I issues. Think, I think some of the strong comments that Leo Varadkar has made and Michal Martin have made, be it which appear on the news or whatever and stuff, have resonated with a lot of the Irish population. Yeah, yeah no, I'm and sorry, it, Sinn Féin have led the charge. They're, they're almost pro-Hamas. Well, well... Yeah, they've been careful because I think they don't want to go down the Paddy Cosgrave route and lose support in the US as well. And something I didn't mention earlier when we were talking about the corporation tax, one of the most important things Sinn Féin has done is it has been making its contacts on Wall Street and throughout the United States reassuring that it will not be changing our tax position when it gets into power. And they don't want to because they know they need all that money for all the spending that they plan. Anyway, I Before want to we think, end, we, how, oh, sorry, how, how come we things. haven't talked about the story of the year no, yet? No, we're getting to that. There's one other thing I want to You're ask you about. You're stuck in that media bubble. You're not seeing what people are really talking you about. You want to go into the media bubble, and I'll get to that in a second. But you were a cabinet colleague of Michael D. Higgins, yeah. the president. Yeah. So what do you make about his oh. increasing interventions uh, into the public sphere I, I in 2023? that Michal and Leo and others have taken the view that he's such a national treasure, he cannot be criticised. And he has a free hand to do what he's like. He has trespassed beyond the limits of any previous president. It is an outrage. It's not what he was elected to do. He's been very populist in the way he's gone about it, uh, both in left-wing and in terms of these other issues. It's not that I disagree with them. I just don't think it's the job of the president. But then, has he set a bad precedent for who might be the next president? Absolutely. And it's a complete lack of backbone by the government leader that they've let him do it, not for what is involved in the here and now, for the future precedent that it's set. OK, we'll finish. Who are you loyal to? No, my situation <laughs> is this. That, that, oh, sorry, talking about RTE. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> I'll tell you exactly. The, I'm loyal to the taxpayer. Uh, the, 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 the situation is, for the last 20 years, you would know this better than anyone. Print, media have been decimated by digital communications, Google search ads, and people absorbing their news on apps. And the fact of the matter is the business model of TV and radio and media has fundamentally changed globally. 
RTE has stayed in the same spot, 1,900 employees. And what do the government do instead of saying, look, lads, you need to move to a Channel 4 publisher model. You need to dismantle the structure that's there and make it fit for a purpose or else there won't be an RTE. And what do they do? Again, not thinking beyond November 24. They write a cheque for 56 billion. Everything is... They're not quite that generous. No, but the, the point about it is this. No real progress on the road to it and this is all predicated in my view that RT was going to lose 30 million a year now we have the separate issue which is the legacy of the summer is that 60 million of, of licence fee is not going to be collected so actually they're facing a deficit of uh, 90 million a year and what does backers come up with either unimplementable decisions long fingering it's not fit for purpose and you know what's going to happen to RT if they keep on this track of denial there's going to be an administrator appointed it wouldn't come to that. I mean, isn't that what a lot of people in RT are depending on, that no matter what actually happens, the government will step in and bail it out? Well, they also think that the public sector unions there have a tight grip. If RT went to strike for three months, the people wouldn't hardly notice. The fact of the matter is that those days are gone. And and, and sorry, this is this is a microcosm. Like, you have... People in Media House saying there will be no printed newspapers after 2030. You have the head of BBC who are moving everything onto the player saying there will be no terrestrial TV after 2030. Wake up! What planet are Montrose on? Leaving aside the flip-flops and the cars. Will you have any strong opinions to offer us during 2024? (laughs) Ivan Yates and me, Matt Cooper, we're doing Path to Power. It is a podcast that will be available every week Throughout How the do you year actually, 2024. I'm on these things on my phone. Do you have to have the Spotify or the Apple uh, uh, app to you? Well, you do, but you don't have to do it necessarily if you Google on Path your to phone power. as well. If you, if you Google Path to Power, would that get you? Okay. Get on to Spotify. Get on to Apple. wish the people a happy Christmas. Hold on a second. Well, I wasn't <laughs> finished yet. You get on to wherever it is you get. Lots of people know where to get their podcasts, Ivan. Subscribing is the issue. And then perhaps sending a link to your friends. And when in the week will it be available? We'll come out on weekends. We'll be available from Friday. Friday, the end of the week. Take you through the weekend. No one will be safe. (laughs) Yeah, people want to go for a walk with the dog or whatever. If you don't want to listen to your partner, you can sit on with a headphones. There'll be a limit on the woke nonsense as well. That's another 20 euro. (laughs) That's 40 euro going into the jar to start the week. But as I said, or to start the year, we will do a bet at the end of the year on it. Okay, that's it from us. And will we do it together? Happy Christmas, everybody. Best for the new year. And to the new year. See you the first week in January.